When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But it's it's strange, even, even thinking about doing this pod. So I was thinking about when I used to work. I had a serious job in the ambulance service for a time before I was a comedian and, and, and started thinking about that. But even then putting the sort of sequence of events together, you suddenly think, hang on a second, I, I'm not as, as sure about that as I, as I, I was yesterday. So, so it's, it's, it's an interesting one. And of course, the older you get, the more memories you accrue and the more difficult it is to put them into a proper order. Although, of course, I do remember you and Ainsley Harriet doing your seminal impression of a pint of Guinness on stage, of course, which is a memory I will never... I will long cherish and never get out of my mind. Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros, and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, sport, and entertainment, who are here to share their wisdom and their use of humour with you. Humorology is the study of how humour can dramatically improve your business success and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This is the first episode of a two-parter. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is an award-winning comedian, writer and podcast host. His highly acclaimed stand-up comedy has captivated crowds for decades and he is the only comedian to perform in the Tower of London. In addition to his performing work on the stage and screen, he is a very, very successful scriptwriter for shows like They Think It's All Over, Never Mind the Buzzcocks, Eight Out of Ten Cats, Have I Got News For You, A League Of Their Own, Strictly Come Dancing, The Graham Norton Show, BBC Sports Personality of the Year and Children in Need, just to name a few. He is a BAFTA nominee and has won the Time Out Comedy Award, a Writers Guild Award and a Sony Gold Award. When he's not performing stand-up or crafting comedic scripts, you can find him covering sports on multiple media channels, including BBC Two and Radio 4. Despite all of these hugely impressive accolades and the thousands of stars that he's worked with, the one thing that he is always most excited to talk about is his beloved Crystal Palace FC. Kevin Day, welcome to the Humorology podcast. Hello, Paul. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on that lovely run of puns at the top of the show. It's very good. And also, yes. it's, um, it's, it's Radio 5 I do sport. Radio 4's sports output is limited at the moment. 
Oh, yeah. Damn. Typo already. That's all right. That's fine. That's fine. I just like the idea of Radio 4 having some sport on it. <laughs> I can't quite imagine how they would cover it. I keep telling Radio 3 they need more sport on there, but they don't, they don't listen, Paul. <laughs> well, I mentioned Crystal Palace, which I'll come back to because I'm very interested in how, from a humorology perspective, it enhances your well-being and your life. But I want to go back to the early days you were brought up in south west london not far from me and i've heard you regale people over the years with fascinating stories about your childhood uh, is it true that your earliest memory of is coming home from a football match singing a humorous somewhat colorful chant yes it is i always say south london paul as well just in case people think i'm from richmond which wouldn't suit <laughs> Which wouldn't suit the image. Um, I'm from uh, the Streatham Tooting Ballers, which uh, never used to have a name, but it's now called Graveney by estate agents. It used to be up the road when I was a kid. Yeah, it's funny because I, I, writing my book, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, it, it's memories that I cherished for years were severely challenged while talking to people about them uh, in order to write the book. And I, I found especially talking about Crystal Palace, all my friends entirely disagreed with stories and legends that I thought were, were set in stone. But I do distinctly remember, well, I certainly remember being told, I, I, my Uncle Bill took me to my first ever football match, which was Wimbledon back in the day when they were a non-league team. Um, and the story is that I came home from the game singing, one, two, one, two, three, bollocks to the referee. And my parents were so offended they wouldn't let him take me again, which is... It doesn't have a ring of truth about it because as Barry Cryer once said about my mum, she swore like a docker's parrot. She, she was she was very much of Irish peasant stock, so she would not have been offended by I, I suspect it's more the fact that Uncle Bill asked my dad for the ticket money that meant I wasn't taken again. But the other problem with Uncle Bill is, and this is uh, true, he was um he was on the fringes of organised crime. He used to claim that his brother was the craze third reserve getaway driver. In case the other two, if the other two had a cold, his brother would be. But he was also a spiritualist medium, so he had a, he had a habit of he would suddenly stop if I was out with him. He was I got on very well with him, but he would he would stop or he would disappear. He once disappeared into a betting shop because he'd had a tip for the two thirty at Kempton from Charles Dickens that came through. So he was um he was an interest. But that, I know that was my first ever football game that was was at Wimbledon. Um, I clearly had the time of my life. That's how I came home singing. So yeah. actually, I wanted to come back to your uh, your family. Was humour actually valued as a, uh, in your family? Was it, was it important in, in status, or is it culturally important? That's a very interesting question. Does it? There was lots of. Lots, I was an only child, um, but my mum had ten brothers and sisters, so there was always people around and. and Certainly on the Irish side of the family, my dad's working class South London, he had a much smaller family and, and uh, his one of his brothers and one, his sister would, took themselves rather seriously. So laughter wasn't so much heard there, but certainly on the Irish side, laughter was something. There was a, the, the better you were at telling jokes, the, the more valued your company was. And I, I often wonder thinking back whether that's a lesson I subconsciously took on because certainly... If you could sing in my mum's family, then you were always invited to parties. But all my mum's brothers were were very funny, but they it was never jokes that they told. It was always impossibly implausible shaggy dog stories that grew in the telling. But they're all masterful. Well, I, I look back on it, and even now when I talk to 
the two that are left, they're still brilliant storytellers. So yeah, it was, I mean, that's not a conversation we would have had about whether humour was, was valued, but certainly uh, it, it, it was an important part of, of their family. And, and the better you were at telling stories, and again, you, I suppose you could get serious about this and say it goes back to a centuries old Irish tradition of, of telling stories around the fire because it wasn't a literate society. My granddad couldn't read or write till, till his dying day, but it's a very clever man. But certainly at school, I learned quite quickly because I had I was quite bright. I was all right at sport and nothing special. But I learned at school that not only being funny was was quite was quite good, but also being funny long after everybody else had stopped. So I used to get a grudging amount of respect because I never knew. I never read those signals when everybody else knew that the teacher was now fed up with my jocular impressions. Uh, I didn't read that. So I was forever getting into trouble because for, for going too far. But it's that old clear. I never used uh, comedy to, to avoid bullies, but I knew from a, quite an early age that if you could tell jokes or be funny, because I was always I was always quite quick to make connections. If you know, if somebody said something, I was always quite quick to pick up something like that. I had a tendency to be quite sarcastic, which I still I still have, unfortunately. But yeah, it's certainly in the Irish side of the family, humour was a very valuable uh, tool. Because in they, you know, they weren't a family who ever spoke to each other in terms of actual conversations. Uh, they either sang to each other or they told each other jokes. There was no emotional depth. No one had a real chat. There might be some tears at a funeral, obviously, but they weren't the sort of family to sit down and talk about the world's problems. So yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting question, yes. And the short answer is yes. One of the things about the whole Humorology project is is that, that how humour can be that ultimate bonding tool. But it sounds like you you actually subliminally got that, but it wasn't it wasn't said right uh, right, Kevin. You have to go out and learn three gags, otherwise. I think it can only have been subliminally. It's like I, I get asked to do these talking head shows quite a lot, where yeah, they'll look back at the seventies or the eighties. And they'll say, you know, what were your thoughts when you watched Steptoe and Son? And it's like, I have to be honest to say, I didn't have any. And it's like, they, they will show you an episode and you'll say, yeah, I remember that episode. But I don't remember at the time thinking this is a seminal piece of, uh, of, of comedy. I don't remember thinking there's one particular Steptoe episode, which I adore, which is where uh, two prisoners escape from Wormwood Scrubs. And there's an old one and a young one. And their situation mirrors uh, Steptoe and Son. And then they end up in Steptoe and Son's house. And there's not a laugh in it for the last 10 minutes. Now, n- now I will talk to you for an hour about how important that was. At the time, I probably would have been thinking, there's no jokes in this. So I, I, there, w- there wasn't a time when I used to sit and watch comedy with my dad and go, oh, I, lo- I love the way Benny Hill leers at that woman. Or, you know, it's only with hindsight that I, I realised how important it was. So it would have been subliminal. There would, there would never have been a time where I sat down and thought to myself, oh, this is a good way of getting in with the family. Or... One of my uncles never sat me on his knee and said, this is what you have to do. You have to get yourself some shaggy dog stories. You know, I'm only five. But so, but certainly I, I, I think I must have picked up on how important humour was and how important it was as a way of, of communicating. And there was always a lot of laughter. I mean, my mum suffered very badly from depression, but she was always very happy when her family were around. There were always a lot. And it was interesting as well, because it was only the men that were in, that were funny. And I don't know, again, whether that was part of the... 70s social thing in, in Ireland or, or in Anglo-Irish society whether they weren't encouraged to be funny but it was always the men who held court and the women tended to be the ones who sang basically but it was, it was I do remember that I remember 
the joy of laughter. I never analysed it. I never just, you know, I never thought, you know, which one of my uncles tells a story better. But it was certainly a very important part of family life, yes. You, you brought up your mum, and, and mm. uh, I've heard you talk about your ideas about depression and the fact that now everybody is saying they're mm. depressed when, in fact, what they are is temporarily unhappy. And mm. with my psychology hat on, I, I completely agree. But you're around and your mother suffered sometimes with very debilitating forms of depression. Do you, do you think that, and you just touched on it, that humour uh, can have a role in, in actually dealing with these kind of things? I think so. I, I, I don't know how, as I'm not scientifically minded, but my mum's depression was such that, I mean, she was advised not to have children. So she was, she was depressed before she had me and then, uh, it was exacerbated by that. her depression was such uh, that for six months of every year she was either in hospital or she'd locked herself in the back room. I remember being taken out of school because she'd had what they called shock treatment at the time and the hospital wouldn't release her until there was somebody to look after and that was me and I was eight. But when she wasn't depressed, she was the, the best mum ever. She was brilliant. She was, a, she was a bundle of energy and fun when she wasn't depressed, but it was kind of six months on, six months off. But even, even then, it was noticeable that she would visibly, even if she, was, if she was poorly, if she was ill, and her family turned up, as they would sometimes in dribs or drabs, then she was always energised by that. And she would always have three or four good days after seeing her family because she just... She wasn't. She was. She was very funny herself, but not in company. She would. She would never. She was too sort of, not shy, but she would never sort of. She didn't really think it's a woman's place, even even up to the day she died. God love her. Five years ago, she always thought that women should only be doing comedy if all the men who wanted to have a go had tried it. Basically, she <laughs> she was never. She never thought. She always. She hated what I did for a living. She was always terrified for me. But yeah, it was interesting that she she loved laughter. She loved laughing and, and she loved her family being around. It, it might have been that her family was here, but she, you know, her family did seriously cheer up. But the way you introduced that, I do get quite cross because having witnessed depression at first hand, I, I do get quite upset with people who, and I don't deny that anxiety, of course, this is a, a terrible world we live in at the moment, there's, there is people, but there are there are too many people who are too keen to claim depression when they're not depressed. They they might be they might be very sad. They might be very unhappy, but depression is a debilitating disease. The, the real depression is a shocking, awful, debilitating disease. And this headlong rush for people to want to claim to be depressed slightly distresses me. And also because it takes up too much valuable time. For the NHS as well, when people and uh, but I think what needs to happen is that people need to be given the tools to be aware of the fact that they're anxious, they're sad, they're worried. But that's not depression, basically. But at the moment, because we live in this terrible binary world, everyone goes, "I'm I'm either depressed or I'm not depressed," and there's nothing in between. And what we need to talk about are those things in between, so people can recognise where they are on that scale of depression, for want of a better word. Yeah, and and it's labelling, and it's uh, I mean from a psychological perspective, it's very uh, interesting that uh, when you give somebody a label, they tend to cling on to it, and therefore it becomes their reality because they, and and I do think it's a, it's dangerous to, to to label people so much. 
I've seen that Paul with a lot of friends of mine with their with their children when they were so you know these are these are people classic modern parents both in jobs where their children weren't particularly doing well in school or perhaps were unhappy various reasons and they were so desperate for them to be diagnosed with something they wanted there to be a reason why their kid wasn't particularly happy at school and it might be that the kid's not academically minded and doesn't particularly want to be at school but all of them rather than think that the perhaps the problem lies with them all of them were desperate for the child to be labeled something and for the child to become and of course they all love their children dearly but you know their life and their career were as important at the time as the children and of course they said well we're earning money to send him to private school well perhaps he doesn't want to go to private school Perhaps she doesn't want to, to do four languages. Perhaps she wants to play netball for a living. But it's but and it's, so as soon as there's a problem, they think, oh God, well they must be. Let's get them diagnosed with something because then it's not my problem. Well, and it's also that whole thing whereby you know you have to work under these parameters, and the parameters yes. seem to have come in so much. Yeah, yeah, You've yes. got to get ten GCSEs. You've got to do this, right. and of the and and there's some people. I mean. We obviously mixed with a lot of them for our lives who don't fit into any of those stereotypes. Of course they don't. And it's, I, yeah, this is not a particularly good time to be middle-aged, Paul, to be honest, is it really? But well, I think, think we're a, both young. Well, yeah, but I think it's, I think this is a dreadful time to be young. Even before the pandemic, there's so much pressure on young people yeah. to look perfect. Everywhere they go, they're bombarded by images of perfect looking bodies. They're bombarded by images of people who are successful for no apparent reason, they bombard, you know, you have to get the, as you say, you've got to be successful, you've got to go to university, you've got to do this, and it's all you have to, you've got to, the 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 choices have never been greater for young people, but at the same time, the things that the older people want them to do, as you say, have narrowed down so much. I mean, the idea that a, 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 one of my friend's kids might want to be an apprentice would horrify them. Whereas 30 years ago, it was a perfectly valid thing to do. If a kid wasn't academically minded, but liked cars, you'd go, oh, great, why not do an apprenticeship? Why not become a builder and decorator? You'll make a lot more money and you won't have to pay a student loan back. But no, it's no, you've got to do this. You know, especially middle class families, which are mostly the ones we know, you've got to go to university, you've got to get this degree. And it's like my, I think my son was very brave because he, he decided, a very bright, young, talented man, he decided at the age of 17 and a half that he didn't want to go to university. He, 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 thought he pretty much knew what he wanted to do with his life. He didn't think, you know, people, uh, his teacher said to him, well, you've got to go to university to make contacts, to get a range of people that you, and he said, I already, I already have. And I, why do I want to saddle myself with 50,000 pounds worth of debt to make, basically make my phone book bigger, essentially. And, but at the time it was a decision that I wasn't particularly happy with. I, I supported him. His mum, wasn't particularly happy with but you just go oh, fine and it turns out that he was absolutely right and his his life has not been is no richer than it would have been had he gone to to college he you know he didn't want he he trusted that he would get opportunities in the in the world of acting and comedy without having to go to university and join a drama club to do so and, that, and now it may be that 10 years down the line when all the people that he would have been at university with and then running BBC Light Entertainment, he might regret that decision in 10 years' time. But I don't think he will. But it, it, even the fact that we're talking about it being a brave decision is a strange conversation to have. He's, he's a, a young man who's always known his own mind. He was, he was a professional choir boy. He was in a choir called Libera, who were well-known across the world. He sang with the Beach Boys, sang for the Pope. 
And at the age of at the age of eleven, he said, "I want to leave the choir." And most of my social life at the time was down to the choir. And I said, "Well, we don't, don't stay in the choir. We love the choir." He said, "No, you love the choir." He said, "But I don't want to be the boy because he was on the front of the two C, the latest two CDs being the cute cherubic one." He said, "I don't want to be the boy that gets taller and ends up at the back of the CD cover with the surly scowl." And he said, I, I want to go to school and be a normal schoolboy. I don't want to be the kid that's in the choir and has to. And, and he said, I've been all over the place. But, but that was a really brave decision to make. And so it's, it's again, it was a decision we didn't particularly want him to do, but you have to allow them to do it. And it seems to me that young people, and I know we're very way off the subject here, but young people, it seems to me, whilst being under this extraordinary pressure, are, are discouraged from making their own decisions about their own lives. And I think there's so... It's so hard being young these days. It really is, even, even financially. My, I mean, my son likes to think of himself as a new Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce doesn't want to be living at home, but he can't afford, he can't afford not to be. It's simply because even where I live in my part of South London, rents are exorbitantly high and it's ludicrous. When we were young, we would share a flat. If, if, we, if you were still living at home at the age of 18 when we were young, there was something wrong. But if yeah. you moved out, you shared a flat, you squatted, you did whatever. But accommodation was so much cheaper. And it's, I, I really feel for young people. And again, it's like business people. Young people are not really, they don't learn about business. That's one of the kids. I'm, I'm a, um, a trustee of the Crystal Palace Foundation, which is a role I'm very proud of. And there are all sorts of things. And social mobility is one of our big, our big things for young people because there are people in Croydon who have never been to London. And there are, there are, we reach out to young people. And yeah, we, we try and create studio space. We get them in. We've got all sorts of community projects going on. But one of the things that we picked up on two years ago is that people were saying, "Yeah, you can, you can. If you play football, you can, you can, you can get out of this situation. If you can box, you can get out of this situation. If you can sing or dance, you can get out of this situation." And we looked around and said, "Well, what about the ninety-five percent of kids who can't do that?" So we looked for role models for them in lo amongst local businesses. So we got people who were running, even if it was like a bakery or a big uh, corporation, we, we got them in to talk to a lot of the kids in the area just to, to show to them that there are all sorts of ways to improve your social mobility. And that you, because you're from Croydon and because you've been labelled by the rest of the country as being from Croydon, therefore of no real value to society, doesn't mean that you can't have aspirations and hopes and ideas and here are the people to prove it you know and so it's it, it but it's, it took us until two years ago to work out that 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 business was an important way out for people as well a hundred percent but uh, but and one of the things and which does and funny enough this does all tie into the whole humorology project is about lightness of touch how you behave in certain situations uh, i'm i'm on uh, work with a, a couple of social enterprises that do similar things one have um so you want to be in tv mm. there is no social middle but you've worked in tv for mm. forever as uh, as have i how much social mobility do you see in tv again that's a really interesting question because I, I talk to a lot of people, and, and the, the thing about being a trustee of the foundation is that we, yeah, they don't want to talk to me, right? They, they, these are mainly young black and Asian kids. They don't want granddad talk, turning up. So what we have are a whole range of young people. We call it the power of the badge. There's a whole range of young black and Asian uh, staff that we have at the foundation who wear the Crystal Palace badge, and that gets them in. You know, we have this brilliant scheme where every Friday and Saturday night at three police stations in Croydon, one of our councillors goes to the police station 
to be there for kids that have been arrested for the first time, to talk to them about what brought them there. And two of those kids in the past two years now work for the foundation, so which I think is remarkable. We do a lot of stuff with with around gangs and all that, but the social mobility thing is really interesting because most people that we work with, and we work with at the moment about 13,000 kids across the borough, I would say probably three or four of them would think that there's a chance that they could ever work in TV because it's a work that, and, and what's happened in TV is that quite rightly, the broadcasting uh, companies and the production companies have worked out that on screen, we need to reflect the society we live in. So there are a lot more black and Asian people and women uh, presenting TV shows, which is exactly how it should be. But when you go to the studio, you don't see any black faces. Yeah. There's, you, you see very few black cameramen, very few black producers, and I mean, on the fingers of one hand, very few black directors, still mostly white middle-class people. There are companies like Zepatron, um, Richard Osman's company, who to their enormous yeah. credit, pay their, their junior staff, because there are a lot of production companies who shamefully still don't pay interns or runners or whatever you want to call them. So what happens is, the only kids who get those jobs are the, the kids whose parents can afford for them to do it or know somebody in the production company. So there are companies that are starting to realise that society needs to be reflected behind the screen. But no, social mobility is still... The fact that it's 2022 and we're still having to work at it is, well, is shocking, but it still it still exists. And, and people still talk to me. I haven't got... I've never really had a chip on my shoulder, but there is still a class, an issue with class in this country. There's, there's, no, there's no doubt about it. And... Well, but it's maintained for a, a, a reason is so that the the people at the top can can get all the jobs for their own children. But, but, but absolutely, but the thing, but Paul, but that 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 damages out the, the rest of society because you all know yourself the amount of talent and energy that we have in our area is going untapped, of and course. these and, and these are kids that will end up with their own mental health problems because they are kids who feel that there's nowhere for them to go. But these are kids with ideas, with energy, with enthusiasm. And we're, we're missing out on that. As, and you all know that yourself. And that's that's got uh, to change as well. Oh, but here's how I think it can change. And the only way it can change, because everybody's doing a sop towards, you know, we, we want more people of this ethnicity or yeah, yeah. Uh, this thing, rather than actually going out into the community and giving the skill sets they need so that they will be comfortable when they enter into those places. Yeah. And that's the key for me, is it's all very well, we're going to take one of these, one of these, one of these, we're going to put them in situ. Well, actually, if they haven't got the skill sets, which includes uh, communication skills, whereby you feel comfortable in there, it's never going to work. The marriage is never going to happen. And I'm, I'm very passionate about the fact that you can't just do it, you have to do it from the baseline level i i mean i i'm you know i'm very happy to come and uh, talk to your people if if it helps yeah absolutely about here's some communication skills that work on every level and and that's what you have to be able to do and humor is part of that by the way if you can make the managing director laugh wherever you're from it evens out everything I couldn't agree more. There are two things off the back of that. My, my dad, God rest his soul, who, who I lost recently, who I was very, very close to, uh, he taught me to read at the age of four because he thought, he said it might come in handy. And as it happened, reading has always been 
my passion, my headmaster at primary school loved me because at the age of seven, I had a reading age of 14. I used to drive my mum up the wall because she wanted me climbing trees and having fights, not reading books during summer holidays. But reading's always been really important. And my dad always said to me, never lose your accent, but you, you need to speak the same language as the people that are giving you jobs when you grow up. Yeah, so, and that, that was a really important lesson. But that thing with human bosses, I'm in a really happy situation because I've been doing my job for long enough as a writer that I can take the piss out of the producers, right? They know me and I can take the piss out of them. And I always try and do it in front of the, the, the junior staff because they never get the chance to do that. So yeah. I will always, you know, if there's a crowded office, that's when I will uh, take the opportunity to, to jokingly say to the producers, the money you pay these people is shocking. You should be ashamed of yourself going back to your 12 bedroomed house with your car made of gold because it, but also it's just nice. It's attention release because it, it because it, it's great to hear the junior staff laughing. And I've always, I've, I think you're absolutely right. But that idea, it's also a risky one. I mean, if you're, if you're just making your way in the industry, in any industry, the, the idea that you're going to try and make your boss laugh is a kind of 50, 50 situation because if it works fine, if it doesn't, you're probably you're probably in trouble. And it's and that's a, there's also that fine line between making somebody laugh. I found and taking the piss out of them. And I, I've always found that you have to. It, it's as a friend of mine, uh, God love him, Dave Ricketts. He's got the most preposterous West Country. He's from Gloucester. If he was in a sitcom playing a character from Gloucester, you'd say, mate, dull the accent down a little bit, which is it's nobody talks like that. He's also obsessed with badges. He, he once, he's the most peaceful man you've ever met in your life, but he turned a table over in a pub once because me and a friend were blaming badges for bovine TB. And he just went, you don't, you people, you don't know anything about badges, you bloody, you townies, you oh, terrible. Oh, did it. <clears throat> but I, I, was, I once said to him, I only really take the piss out of people I like. And he went, well, you must bloody love me then because you take the piss out of me all the time. I said, of the... But it's but it's, a, it's that fine line of getting, it's an odd thing where you get to know someone. <clears throat> and again, I always thought it's a very South London thing, but I think it's a very working class thing is that people, if people come to the pub we drink in before Palace Games, where we go, as Ali, my wife says, who you know, basically we go, as she says, to sit at the same table in the same corner talking the same bollocks to the same people that you have done for 25 years which is part of the process but if a, if if somebody if a friend of a friend comes along for the first time they they must sometimes think these people don't like each other at all because all they're doing is is taking the piss out but that's a reflection of how much we love each other and how much that we've known each other for so long that we have all these shared experiences we have all these shared buzzwords and yet rather than show affection in front you know individually if i've been with one of them we will hug and we will be, we will talk about things in life but as a group we show our affection community as a community by, by literally taking the piss out of each other and reminding each other of terrible failures of the past which never fails to make us laugh which again is is something that a psychologist would be looking at but that the, the power of laughter is is i'm fascinated by it but i'm also fascinated by the fact that it only needs to go wrong by one degree and somebody's going home really unhappy. They might laugh around the table, but we, we instinctively know the things that you can't tease people about. That you, well, you know, but we, that's we, about, that's, uh, uh, that's really about actually understanding that first of all, you have to gain rapport with people 
in order to do that. So that is the huge communication that comes from confidence. You know, why, why is everybody in this current shower of a parliament uh, gone to public school and everything because they're taught this confident air and and everything and then they're taught communication models which are you know we learned these in different ways but you have to start I always say you start by listening but you listen with the eyes and you're looking at people and going has this pissed you off no, you know I'm teasing when I say this. You know we're playing a little game, but it's a very important part. I agree, you can't just go in and do it, which is why you need, why, why I think education is so important in the broader scale, not about getting exams and everything. How do people communicate? When, when have you ever heard of anybody uh, at school getting lessons in, in communication? That's really interesting. That, that concept of listening with the eyes is a, is a fascinating one as well. I suppose it's sort of, you'd call it reading the room, but that, yeah. that's, that's a really, because I, I suppose the, the, a teacher would say that, well, of course, everything is about communication because we're, we're talking all the time. But you're right in terms of actually teaching people to communicate. And what, what I find interesting about being and again, coming back to my group of friends, it's like there's a couple of them with failed marriages that we know we can take the piss out of them because they're happily married now. But there's a couple with failed marriages. There's a few without with unfailed marriages, I have to say, but we, we wouldn't take the piss out of them because we know that it was serious and upsetting. But what's interesting as well about that group communication is when you're in a room, a dressing room, for example, or if you're in, I was in a writing room recently with a large group of comedians. After about five minutes, when everyone sort of established themselves, they tend not to be funny, hilarious, because comics, when they're in each other's company, the pressure is off to, to be funny. We all respect the fact that we're funny. As soon as a muggle comes in, a civilian, a non-committed, as soon as they come in, immediately, if there's eight comics in a room who have been chatting quite amiably about history or politics or, or family without the need to make people laugh, as soon as a non-comedian comes in, all eight of those people will start to want to make those, that person laugh. And it, it takes a bit of confidence to not want to do that. I'm not that sociable, oddly. Ali's very sociable. She loves having people around. So my dad was exactly the same as me with his my age. If people, if my mum had people around, around about nine o'clock, he would turn the fish tank lights off. That was his first cue that they should probably be going. Then he would start winding the alarm clock. And then eventually, if he was fed up, he would just turn the lights off and leave them in the dark. And then, but what <laughs> I can do, if I come home to a house full of people, I'm very good because I can, I can actually take the, miss, the piss out of them. But they don't, that Ali knows what I'm doing, but they don't. And they, they think, oh, he's just being funny when he says, oh, for the love of God, what are you doing in my house? They laugh because they think, I'm, and I am being funny. But it's, it's someone may once said to me, I love having you as a guest, but you're, you're obsessed. He called it the tyranny of the punchline. He said, you're obsessed with having the last word. And every subject we talk about, no matter how serious, you're always looking for a funny angle out of it. And I can see your mind working. And the thing is that you say it out loud. We're live on radio and you will say it. And the fact is you're interesting enough without having to make people laugh. You've proved yourself as a human being. And that was a really good lesson for me. And it, it was kind of brave of Simon to say that to me, really, because he just said, look, it's great. You're funny. We believe you're funny. We know you're funny. You don't have to keep proving it. And I actually found myself enjoying being a guest on his show 
so much more after that. It's like I'm doing uh, talk sport this afternoon. I love live radio. It's one of my favourite my favorite mediums. I love podcasts. I think podcasts are the most democratic thing that's happened to broadcasting in years. I think podcasts are, are brilliant. And I, if, if somebody young and new asks me to do a podcast, I will always do it. So I think it's important to encourage people. And again, that comes back to teaching, communicate. Doing podcasts is a way for young people to communicate that they never had before. And it's, it's amazing to prefer a podcast. But I enjoy doing things like live radio so much more now that I have the confidence to let an obvious punchline go by. I have the confidence to let somebody else be funny. I have the confidence to let somebody else speak for a minute or so, knowing that when I do get my chance to speak, I'll be good at it. But it took it took me a long time to learn that lesson. And if Simon Mayo hadn't told me that, I would probably would have spent the first 30 minutes of this podcast trying to make you laugh which you know, it's, it's, if I was, it's failed dismally so far. But, but, you know, but that's, that's what I would have been trying to do. And it, it gets, I, I sometimes find it wearing when you're in the company of people who just can only communicate through jokes, through laughter, and, and have no other communication skills. And when, when it's time to talk seriously, they're sort of lost. But isn't the essence of great comedy comes out of truth? As, that's always right. And, and also, does the truth go down easier with a joke attached to it? So there's both sides of that. It, it comes down to actually understanding that the truth is powerful. It, it is. I mean, I think if you were to watch Tim Vine, for example, who's a comic I admire greatly because yeah, I brilliant. can't write one-liners, but I don't know whether you'd say there's a much truth in that comedy. I, I think... In in everyday life, in terms of business, in terms of when you're talking to producers or people, I think humour helps because, for example, if a producer says we can only offer you this much money because the budget's low, if I wasn't a comedian, I'd go, oh, fine, okay, well I'll take it. But as a comedian, I can go, well, you would say that, of course you would say that. We know that's not true, but I can say it in a funny way. Yeah, you sort of mean. So it is a very useful, a useful tool. I think the idea of comedy speaking truth to people is a very interesting one, especially as a comedian, obviously, but it's got to be funny. I, people used to hate a lot of comics, a lot of alternative comics used to dismiss jonglers. Remember jonglers in Clapham, which had this of course. Uh, the, the reputation <laughs> thousands of, being, of times. Of course, yeah. they had the reputation of being the yuppies paradise and they hated it. Girl, they're all yuppies. They don't. I loved it because I always found you could talk about anything. You could take the mickey out of our posture. You could talk about any subject, no matter how serious, but you had to make it funny because it says comedy on the door. And <laughs> as a comedian, if you don't make it funny, then you're not a comedian, you're just a lecturer. And it's important to be funny. And I found, and I'm talking about really serious subjects, abortion, politics, all sorts of stuff. As long as you're funny, you can say, you can say almost anything. There are things I wouldn't talk about on stage, but as long as you're funny, audiences will, will understand that. And also the other thing as well that I always... And I think this comes from the fact I did go to university, but I was chucked out after six weeks. So I, I, I worked in the real world. So I understand that come Friday, Saturday, people in the real world look forward to dressing up, going to a comedy club. And I don't think we should be taking the piss out of those people. I, I couldn't stand comics, compares especially, who would literally go along the front row taking the piss of how they looked, how they looked what clothes they were wearing, how old they were, and it's, it's just like, no, our, our job is to make them laugh. It's not to use them as the butt of laughter for everybody else. And, and as a comic, 
that's what we should be doing. It's, it's, a, it's a job, and it's a job I take really seriously. It's a job I love, but it's our job to make people laugh. And we should be, the targets of our comedy should be people above us. You know, this old cliche about punching up. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And, we, and that's what we should be doing. We shouldn't be taking the piss out of people that have probably had a hard week at, at university or at work or, or are unemployed and who have come out for some light relief. But that, that light relief can be anything. You can talk about anything again, but, but it has to be funny. And again, I think that's where in business, it's, it's always difficult, I think, for people to work out where humour can be used. I mean, it's different. In, in if you're a trainer for example then you can sort of plan where am, like, where am I going to use comedy in this training module is it appropriate are the people I'm talking to appropriate? when I was working at the ambulance service uh, I started off as a clerical officer because the NHS in those days oddly you started as an officer and you ended up as an assistant so I started <laughs> as a clerical officer but I ended up as a principal administrative assistant after seven years so I was quite high up in the pecking order and, and we were uh, industrial relations and recruitment. So we would do industrial relations modules for senior uniformed officers, most of whom were in their 50s and 60s, most of whom were ex-army. And it didn't take me long to realise that humour was the least appropriate thing for those people. The last thing they wanted was this little bloke who looked like he'd stepped off the stage with a new order, being in a training room with them, trying to make them laugh about the new employment law, the new employment act, 
or the new health and safety act it didn't work and if to the extent that eventually i twigged and i used to make them laugh at the start by basically going you don't want to be here i know that you you you're all stuck in your ways you all think you know best let's acknowledge that uh, and let's come out of here in, in an hour with a smile on our faces so everybody else thinks oh that went well so that so acknowledging that really worked acknowledging the fact that that was a situation in which humor wasn't appropriate actually actually became humorous in a strange sort of way whereas with with new recruits or new officers humor was really appropriate and so for example with with new officers we had this like officer induction training stuff that we would do and we would say to them i would say to them look these are some of the real-time issues you're going to face as a new officer you've been on the ambulances for quite some time you're stepping up into a new role. You're going to be, you're now the enemy for some of the people who were your friends. You're now dealing with these other officers. And we would do impressions of the other officers that they were going to deal with, which always went down really well. So it's a question of that. So it comes back to you listening with your eyes about reading the room. But, but there, are, there are some people probably even now who say, well, there's no room for humour in, in communication, in training modules. But the other thing you would learn as well is that every, every job, has its own different type of humor. It's like my, one of my closest friends is still a paramedic. I got him the job back in the day, basically. But you learn from working in the ambulance service and being amongst ambulance crew and firemen as well that they have the blackest, bleakest sense of humor. But they have to because they're not going to get through the they're not going to get through the day unless they can distance themselves from what they've seen and what they've done. They're never going to sleep at night without the aid of alcohol. So they they find a way and their mechanism. Is, is humor because because they have to sort of dehumanize the people they've dealt with and it and that sounds horrible but it, it's partly why they're so good at their job if, if they start to get wrapped up with the people there you know if they start to think i wonder what happened to that old lady that i took in this afternoon again that they, they won't be able to function so they use humor amongst themselves only amongst themselves you they'll never do it in front of family or friends or or, or people that are crying but amongst themselves it's black it's bleak but it's fully understandable, but you would never share that outside. And it's and every group, every uh, people who work, milkmen, I'm sure, had their own jokes, their own cliches, their own buzzwords. And, and postmen probably the same thing. Nurses, it's 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 really interesting. It's really interesting how you have to contain that humour and make sure it doesn't cross over. Yeah. Well, is it appropriate in certain places? I mean, I spent two and a half years training doctors at Guy's Kings and St. Thomas's and, and, and actually the, the, the surgeons, you know, some of the blackest humour you, you've, you've, you've ever seen because, but that's life and death. We had um, on the pod, we had John Sweeney, who has been in 60, actually 61 now, because he's um, just coming back uh, from Kiev um war zones and 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 he says in order to survive you need that Mm. you have to have a release valve because i mean humor is that release valve on that level london ambulance service uh, you know they're seeing horrendous things of course but that's really interesting what you say about the surgeons because one of the very many reasons why i love the nhs um and the last but one Edinburgh show I did was about the NHS and my wife, because when my wife, she was very ill um, a few years ago, as you know, properly very ill, not sure how this is going to play out ill. Um, but her medical team, her doctors, her surgeons, her nurses, 
understood that my way of coping with that was humor. They didn't always laugh, but they understood what I was trying to do. That, and part of the reason I did that show was to explore why an articulate, intelligent man like me still couldn't talk about it properly, that I had to make that my release at the time. So it used to drive Ali up the wall because where she saw medical team, I saw audience. So uh, we would be in these really serious meetings and they, the nurse would, uh, out, you know, out of context, this doesn't sound remotely funny, but one of the nurses said that this treatment that she's having, we're putting her on straight away, she will, Ali will probably lose her hair. And I, I went, oh, well, what, everywhere? Uh, like fingers crossed. Uh, and, and to her enormous credit, she said, yes, it won't grow back if she moves to Wolverhampton. And then brilliantly, <laughs> brilliantly, the nurse then said to me, and, and by the way, this treatment is, uh, her hormones are going to be all over the place. You won't be able to have sex for two years. And I went, really? She went, no. But Ali said to ask, to tell you that. Right? So she knew, she knew, but she, but these people knew, they made allowances for the fact that my, my fear, my terror was, was masked by comedy. They understood that. They didn't think I was, they didn't think for a moment I was being flippant or I didn't care. They just, there was one afternoon, it was a Saturday afternoon, Palace were involved in a relegation struggle, and it, it just so was, was in Hospital Valley, and it, it just so happened that the doctor had said to Ali, you can go home for a week. Uh, so, and literally, as the doctor told her that, I had the radio on, Palace scored a goal in the last second of injury time, and I started running around the ward, you know, going, yes, brilliant, brilliant. And the doctor went, I haven't even told him you're coming out yet. And she said, that's nothing to do with me. He's listening to football. So, <laughs> but it's, but they understood that that was like, and then when, because the doctor said, oh, I really thought you were happy. I said, I, and when he said, Ali's coming home for me, I said, that's, that's brilliant news. I can watch match of the day tonight. Fantastic. But they understood, they understood that it wasn't, it wasn't flippancy. It wasn't cruelty. More importantly, Ali understood that. The eyebrows would raise every now and again. And, and thank God and the NHS, Ali's well and, and happy again. But even now there are times when we're in company that Ali, Ali will give me the odd dig and say, you know, no, don't. That she knows that I'm about to say something about something. She'll just go, no, don't do it, which is great. Because even now I still need reminding that there are times when it's not appropriate. But the, it, what I thought was wonderful, one reason I did that show was to explore how humour is important, even in the darkest of circumstances. We all know my, my dad's funeral in, in November was... I've, I haven't laughed so much in years. And there was, there was 200 people there. They, we, it started at 11 in the morning. The last one left my house at two in, in the following morning. And it, it was brilliant. Dad went into the music from uh, um, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. The, 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 it was, the priest, because my dad was deaf, the priest had a megaphone to, 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 so he could hear it. And it, so, but it was, it was, and there were one or two people who thought that was inappropriate that my dad had this thing for the virgin mary he, he would he was a late convert to catholicism and his his view was i might as well not go to a catholic church as not go to a, an anglican one but he, he he actually got quite into it the older he got and he loved the virgin mary and when he moved in with us much to ali's chagrin he gaffer taped a picture of the virgin mary in his room which is the gaffer tape bit that Ali didn't like, not the Virgin Mary bit, but the, the priest, Father Frank. And Father Frank is the son of Jimmy Cricket. Remember the comedian? So Father yeah, Frank understands humour. So Father Frank did this hilarious oratory in which he ended up ripping off his cassock to reveal an old palace shirt with the word Virgin on it, who he used to be sponsored by, with a picture of the Virgin Mary gaffer taped underneath it, which was 
which was just absolutely fantastic. And it set the tone for the rest of the day. But there were one or two people, one of my aunts, for example, said that was shocking. And I just went, no, it wasn't. It's exactly what dad would have wanted. It made yeah. everybody laugh. And we've, we've all known that experience of laughing at funerals. And it's incredibly cathartic. And that day, obviously, the, it was followed by many days of sadness. I'm still dealing with it now. But the actual day itself, but it was really risky for Father Frank to do that. He didn't, he, you know, he checked with us beforehand that it was all right to be lighthearted. So we went, as I said afterwards, it's a long way from lighthearted to having a picture <laughs> gaffer taped underneath your cassock, which he, like, which he revealed like a strippogram. But it was brilliant and it was perfect and it was exactly, exactly in context. But if you tell people that, it sounds, even now telling you, it sounds odd. It sounds, and there will be people going, well, that sounds a really weird funeral. But then as soon as we got back to the pub where the funeral was heard, that's all people were talking about. People going, oh, that's fantastic. That's really funny. And then that gets conversations going. And of course, everyone starts sharing stories. Ed did an impromptu speech, sharing stories. You tell you tell those stories that most of the people in the room have heard before anyway about dad's ex exploits, but you still laugh at them. And and yet it's it's really odd. The, the idea that you laugh at a funeral is a strange, written down, that's a strange pitch, isn't it? That people well, it is, but but actually psychologically, it does make perfect sense because I mean, I think that humor is the ultimate state change tool. So if, when people are are really in the depth of something, if you could actually make them laugh, it changes the whole brain chemistry of what's going on. And so you can actually look at something in a different way, because what is humor? It's it's looking at it in a different way. So if you can but well, that's why I would say, and I wonder if you would agree, that humour is a superpower in that sense, because it changes everything on a fundamental level. I, I do agree. But again, it comes back to a conversation we had. Uh, as long as it's used correctly, as long as, it's, as long as people who are funny are responsible with it, because it's also, well, I, well, I, whilst I agree with everything you say, it's also very easy to use humour for cruelty, to use humour to undermine, to use humour to tease and to bully. But this idea of parameters, you know, because it's, I think it's wonderful that the, the president of Ukraine is a comedian. But I often wonder whether he's told when he's doing these powerful, moving speeches from a bunker somewhere, whether his aides are saying, don't end with a knock-knock joke. <laughs> it's not appropriate. Because he clearly, knowing comedians as we do, we yeah. know that he will see the humour in the situation that's going on. We know that every muscle in his body is aching to take the piss out of Putin. He's, he, he's probably desperate. Every time he's on telly or talking to the United Nations, he probably wants to do an impression of Putin. But it, it, wouldn't, it really wouldn't be appropriate, except it might. Except it might be the thing... I, I thought it was one of the, the Eurovision Song Contest, which I watched from start to finish for the first time in my life ever, I thought was a wonderful... Exciting, actually exciting occasion and the music was fantastic but also the fact that I heard the following morning they, they interviewed the Ukrainian version of Graham Norton from a because the TV she has been destroyed he commented on the, the Eurovision Song Contest to those people that still have electricity and TVs and he said that winning the Eurovision Song Contest he said the people of Europe said when your friends are unhappy you give them a hug and he said what happened last night was that Europe gave us a hug and he said that and the whole of Ukraine feels feels that and 
in the same way that equates to humor, because the people of Russia, Putin, will be furious at that that concept, that furious at the concept that there's love, and if it, and that's what humor can do. Humor can, in in most circumstances, humor can when it's inclusive, when it's used for the right reasons. Humor is, as you say, a superpower. It really is, and there are times as well when you practice humor. There are times, not always on stage, but and you all know this yourself from from performing. You know that feeling initially that feeling 15 seconds i still get stage fright but that feeling first of all 15 seconds in when you think this is going to be this is a good this is going to be fine this is great let's enjoy this let's relax but also that feeling when you've got a minute to go and you know that the last thing you're going to say ties up everything in, in, and it's clever and it's funny you know the response you're going to get and you just enjoy it so much you almost enjoy that anticipation more than the actual release then of course the problem is that ten minutes later you're still you're still buzzing you're still high you still want to talk about it. It drives Ali out the wall because Ed and I got a gig at the same time. We both come home testosterone fueled monsters, kicking the door in, racing to tell her first how good our gigs were. But that that feeling of of being able to share laughter is an is an amazing thing, and I'm aware that it's a powerful thing to be able to do, and I love doing it. But I'm also very aware. I mentioned the fact I can be sarcastic earlier. I, I still, I'm very aware that there are probably people in the past that I've that I've hurt or or upset or uh, without meaning to do so. But so I have to think very carefully about the next thing I say. So I've become very good. It's taken me a long time, but I'm very good at judging when and where and how far you can go. And I, I think that's easy for me to do in a comedy context or in a social context because I'm a professional comedian. When you've come to try and doing it in a business context that's why I'm fascinated by your podcast because that's where I find it really how do you judge when it's appropriate as when I was ended up as a as a boss um I had my own little I was very proud I had my own little office and there's a there's a big office off my own little office and there's I had eight staff directly underneath me I used to love the sound of laugh I used to love it if I could hear them laughing right because I trusted they're a really good team of people I used to love hearing them laugh but I had to sit I had to really forcibly restrain myself from going out and joining in right because by that time I'd started being a comedian so the two were overlapping I thought I was hilarious but I used to have to go no it's it's it would ruin it for them if I start going out you know Simon Brinston I'll say oh what are we laughing at guys and then join in so you have to let them get on with it securing the knowledge that they will get on with it once they've stopped laughing about whatever they're they're laughing about and it could have been that they were laughing about me but it's that there couldn't be a better indicator, I think, of uh, a healthy company that there are people laughing in it, and the boss is not there. So they're not they're not laughing because you've said something witty or you've made a pun. They're laughing because they're happy-ish in the process. Yeah, and, and again, for a lot of people doing jobs, you know, monotonous not not just jobs like the fire service or ambulance service or police, but monotonous jobs, jobs with just completely repetitious jobs. For them, humour again is another is another great release, and I, I always think this idea that uh, there should be a silent workforce is is a ludicrous one. People should be allowed to chat and communicate and and talk. If you're if you're on the phone all day trying to sell insurance to people, you should be encouraged to every third phone call. You should be encouraged to have five minutes off just to to stretch your legs, but also to talk to other people in the room because I've yeah because otherwise people are just internalising at, at work, and you don't want that from anybody. Well, isn't isn't great leadership about uh, creating a culture where whereby appropriate laughter and appropriate fun can uh, flourish? 
it's not again it's not only about creating that culture it's about having the the common sense and the confidence to to let it flourish on its own it's about walking away from it uh -huh. in the same way that i could always go if i had to go off site to a to a divisional headquarters or whatever i went off site securing the knowledge that when i got back anything that needed to be done would have been done right? and i was always quite happy if if the work was done if come about half past four i would say to people go off go it's, it's like i find it there's still so many production companies there's still so many tv companies you have this macho thing that you've got to be the last one out. Right? As a writer, I will always make a, 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 and again, I'll make it funny, that come around six o'clock, I will make a, a point of getting up in a funny fashion, packing my stuff and saying, I'm off now. My, my contractual hours are done. <laughs> this, and, and I've spoken to quite a few producers and said to them, you're going about this the wrong way because it's fine for you to say, right, you know, we've got to be here till 10 o'clock. There's a car waiting for you outside the office to take you home. You, these people have got to get public transport they've got to get home by the time they get home they've got to go straight to bed to come in the morning because you've got to be first in in the morning they're not it's not productive it's not well, it's productive not for creativity it's not for, for but for any job it's not productive any job no but, but i think any job is creative you see i think the idea that that you know if you work in media you are creative and if you work in a factory you are not because by the way the best factories are getting people to put in ideas about how they could streamline that's a creative process as far as i'm concerned Do you know my my the other thing my dad was my dad was full of good advice he's a very wise man in his working class south london way very wise man but when I joined the ambulance service, I'd, I'd been thrown out of university. I was the first one in my extended family to go to university and the first one thrown out. And my mum, my mum always throughout my life offered me unconditional support, but she was very unhappy at me getting thrown out. I, I went to Reading University to study archaeology. First day there, I met this mature student, fell madly in love, went to one lecture, didn't get a trowel. So I was really cross because I thought we'd be <laughs> digging stuff straight away. And then, so basically, at the end of the first term, they said, "Look, you've not, you, you've not just not been here." And I said, "Well, I'm in love, man." It's like so they they asked me to leave university. My mum was devastated. So then I, I worked in a building site for a while. I had a succession of minor jobs, and I got this job as a clerical officer at the ambulance service. And I was pretty low about this as well. And, and mum was like, "This is what you've thrown away this promising career. You're a clerical." And my dad just went, "Is it the lowest, the lowest grade?" I said, "Yeah, it's the lowest grade you can possibly get. It's clerical." And he said. Be the best clerical officer you can. Just go into work in the morning with a smile on your face. Do that job to the best of your ability. If there's other stuff you can do, say, is there anything else I can do? And that was it was such good advice because that's what I did. And I immediately started to enjoy it. I felt part of a team. I felt that I was productive. And I think that's part of the reason why I started to progress up the ranks. But that was fantastic advice because without that advice from Dad, I would have been just a surly youngster doing just what he had to do to get along and probably would have ended up leaving that job as well and, and gone into something else. But it's really it's really good advice. Well, Dad I think from a humorology uh, perspective and, and what we're talking about is giving people business advice as well about how hmm. to think. I think that is perfect because, I mean, I, I sent my... The, son in when he did work experience first uh, before going to drama school and, and he now works every weekend and everything it is that same advice go around 
be nice to everybody, yeah, say, is there anything I can do? And that the Humorology Project is about being nice to people, being actually uh, having some humility, having some humanity, having some humor in the general sense. And that's the people you want around you. One of, uh, again, one of the best bits of advice I got when I first started, uh, I've, I've, I still call myself a stand-up comedian, even though I, most of my comedy work is writing. But the first show I worked on properly was a disastrous, chaotic mess of a show called Saturday Zoo, hosted by Jonathan Ross, which was live on Channel 4. And the fact it was live, was, but we had huge guests on. We had Paul, proper huge guests. But I remember being in the writing room for the first time, and it just ended up just me and Jonathan. It was the first writing room experience I'd had. And I'd known Jonathan for a while anyway. But I always said, Jonathan, this is, you know, this is all new to me, this world. Have you got any advice? And he said, yeah, always say thank you to the person who brings you your tea. And, it, and it's, it's a brilliant piece of advice because he said for two reasons. He said, A, it's the right thing to do. B, the person bringing you a tea in five years' time could well be a producer. So it's the right thing to do in terms of your career. But it's also, and that's, the, that's what I always say to people, say please and thank you. It makes, it makes such a difference. I went to see a show last night at the Festival Hall that my wife's working with, Fascinating Aida, the brilliant show. But uh, as I'm taking my seat, obviously the seat was in the middle of a row, so I'm very sorry, everybody, I know I'm being a terrible nuisance. And they got up and, and I said, thank you, thank you. And this elderly gentleman went, that's the first time anybody said thank you to me in weeks. And it, wow. it, it makes a, it, it just makes a difference and it makes a difference to the people around you as well. And it takes nothing. It takes nothing to do it. And it's the same with I can't stand performers and comedians who won't sign autographs, who won't talk to people after. It's like, well, what are you doing it for? And it, and it takes you. I, I remember doing a show with Danny Baker. Who I don't particularly got on well with him as a pilot. It was terrible. It didn't get picked up and rightly so. But there were people afterwards who wanted to chat. And you know, I love chatting to people who've seen the show. And they wanted, there's one chap who wanted Danny Baker's autograph. And Danny Baker just gave him this five minute lecture about how shallow his life must be that he needed it validating by having a stranger's name written down on a piece of paper. And I just said to Danny, the length of time it took you to say that, you could have just signed his piece of paper and moved on. It's like I did the podcast that we do, we do we've started to do a live show. We did one in Accrington. It's a we, brilliant podcast, by the way. Uh, I'm thank you very much. But we had, we had 200 people there in a small room in Accrington. And most of them, a lot of them had bought us presents and gifts, which was great, but most of them wanted to, to chat after. So it took us two hours to get out, but I, there's a bar, so I don't mind. But it's part of the thing. I love I love people coming up and telling me how important the pod is to them. And it's the same as a comedian. If, if you're doing a gig and you come out of the show, you go to the bar and people want to say to you, oh, that was great, I really liked it. And occasionally somebody would say, I, I, I've got an issue with, with what you said. And you go, well, fine, well, let's talk about it. Or you have to be open. But this, this idea that you you come off stage and you no longer are part of it. And, and yeah, admittedly, my level of fame is such that I'm not swamped by thousands of people. So I don't know what it's like to be that level of fame, how much of a nuisance that is. But I love the attention. We're all in the business because we want attention. And I don't think you can be on stage for an hour with the people have paid money to, to pay attention to you, you then can't say to them, I've had your attention, you no longer exist to me. It's part of the job, it's part, it goes with the territory. You, have, you, you talk to them and you, you, you talk to them and you end up enjoying the conversation. And if people want to say, I really enjoyed that, thank you very much. I'm only too happy to do that. I can't, I don't understand this. So communication for all of us has to be a two way street. And I, I often found that with, with, with other people, with, with training modules, for example, I often thought, 
even when I was when I was doing them, I often thought afterwards they probably learned more in the half hour cup of tea. You'd always have a half hour session afterwards with a cup of tea and a biscuit or whatever. Mm-hmm. I probably learned more about the job from talking to the ambulance officers in that bit than they probably learned about the Employment Act of 1985 in the bit that I'd been doing. And and what would happen then is that in that conversation afterwards, they would ask you specific questions. They would ask, they would say, to the extent that we we eventually ended up changing the modules because they would say, look, it's fine you telling us about the employment. It's fine you telling us what's in it, but what we need to know is how that works on a daily basis. How does it affect this situation? So then you start introducing things like role play because then you anticipate the situations that they most want to talk about. And it's, it's very difficult I found to get senior ambulance officers to take part in role play. So you would draft people in from the office to, to, to play these roles. But so they so because what they wanted was it was a practical uh, example of how these things worked. They didn't want to know that if somebody was made redundant, then the, the, this was now the rule. They wanted to know how you tell someone that they're being made redundant. You wanted to know how you cope with that with their immediate emotional aftermath and they, these were things that I discovered we weren't telling them how to do so I, I found myself as a as when I did training modules that I was learning more from them as I say and I found that experience really interesting because I find that when you talk to audiences it's the same thing when you talk to people who have seen your show or listen to your podcast or read your book and they say oh why did you why did you use those words or why did you use that piece of information and then you start to think that's a good point. Why did I use those words? And then you find yourself learning from them. Even now, you find yourself thinking, actually, next time I do that, I will, I will take that on board. And if you, if a performer doesn't do that, if a performer doesn't engage with the audience, you don't learn either. And I think I, I still, love, even at my age now, I love learning. I love discovering new things. I love watching documentaries. I love watching books that have been recommended to me. I love, I listen to Radio 3 because I love classical music, but I haven't got a musical bone in my body. So, but I love discovering things. And I'll find myself, you know, I'll be doing the washing up, listening to a piece of music, and then they will discuss how that piece of music was was evolving. And I will stop washing up and listen to it because I still, I think it's really important to learn. And, And I think so many people who run businesses and so many people who are senior business people lose that ability to 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 keep learning they, well, they become... fascinating by the way what what you're talking about i think in the broadest sense which i think is wonderful is attitude you have an, uh, the americans have a saying which is the, your attitude dictates your altitude if you have an attitude whereby you see i walk into every room i do a lot of conference stuff yeah. and everything and i assume everybody is lovely yeah because I, what's I, the alternative yeah, you know, everybody's a bastard in there. You know, yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. I live. I'm not saying I moved to this house because of this, but I live 200 yards away from an off license, <laughs> uh, and it's run by these two chaps from Ethiopia, who I now adore. They, 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 they're both obsessed with football. They're both. So you, I, I could be in there for an hour sometimes talking about football. One's an Arsenal fan, one's a Man United fan, but they both love Palace now because of me. We talk, and you'll you'll often go in there and they'll be arguing about uh, Whistler Krakow with some Polish kids. It's like they'll be, they'll be um, but so that again, that's a good way. But again, it's a it's a communication thing. But right from the start, when I first started to go in there, they would they loved my dad, for example. So I'd go in there with my dad. 
uh, and I, literally the second time I went in with Dad, they gave him a miniature bottle of uh, Jameson's because he mentioned that was his favourite whiskey. They gave him a bottle of Jameson's. First Christmas they were there, we had a knock on the door and they bought us a bottle of champagne at night. And you go, well, they're an off-licence. It's not costing them much, but it doesn't matter how much it costs them because there, is, there are five or six off-licences in my area, but I won't go to them because I know that I... And it's that's all to do with their attitude. In the same way, and this comes to humorology, I love... If there are two chip shops to choose from in a town that I visit, I'll choose the one that's got the pun in the name. <laughs> I will go to the one that says that's called by the grace of cod. Right? I'll do yeah. it because I think, as I think, if they've, if they, you know, it's the same hairdresser. If they've made the effort to come up with something that's funny, and it does, it grabs your attention because you look at it and you smile, and you think, well, yeah. that's a good start. That's a really, that's a really good start. And it's the same. You do judge. You go into a shop, and you, I wouldn't say you look forward to going to the shop, but you, you come out thinking, oh, what a nice bloke. He seems nice. Because he might be the, he might be horrible, he might be a bastard, but he's sensible enough to know that when a customer coming comes in, the customer likes to be said hello to. The customer he likes to be you know what, what you to, and it's and it's it's a simple way of using humour, but it's incredibly effective. Oh, I, I love that. I absolutely love that. And uh, well, uh, talking about effective ways of using humour, I'm a huge fan of your book. Who Thank are you? And I advise anybody who's got a a glimmer of an interest in football to buy it because it is a hilarious but it's like it's really about celebrating the joys and miseries of being a football supporter in a, a, a fascinating and fiercely funny way is being a football supporter the secret to long life and happiness uh, happiness it's not always happiness it's emotion the, the part of the thing i wanted to do with the book apart from represent fans of every club, so there's a chapter of every club, but it's also about the connectedness of football fans. As I always say to people, if I, I, it's always the first point of conversation. You, you'll meet somebody and you go, oh, who do you support? And if they say, oh, I don't really like football, I say, well, what do you talk to strangers about at wedding then? It's, it's, it's <laughs> bit, and so I remember meeting Chris Packham for the first time. We had to share a cab away from this show, and I said, you know, uh, you, you football fan? He said, I don't like football. So that's like, Literally, I can talk about other stuff, but this is the way he said it that annoyed me. So I thought, well, I'm not going to talk about other stuff then. But it's it's about the connectedness. It's about everywhere you go, football links. And it's like the, the pub I spoke to, and I'm sure it's the same with you. Football fans still get a bad press. There's still a certain group of people who hear the word football fans and think they're troubled. The pub I drink in, proper working class South London boozer, and it's full of proper working class South London boozers as well. But... There are accountants, there's taxi drivers, there's lawyers, there's comedians, there's TV producers, all sorts. And they're all brought together. They wouldn't be meeting each other were it not for football. And football fans have this connectedness. And there is this sense, of, for me, the best way of describing it for me, it's the baseline of my life. In moments when I've been deeply miserable, Ali always said to me when she was in hospital with Palace at home, she always said, go to the game. Don't sit here with me. Go to the game. And in times when I'm deeply miserable, my friends understand, right? But it, it, it is an escape. It's a cliche, but it is an escape. And it, it's the sense of belonging that's really important. And it, it's important. I love theatre. I love, I like ballet. I went to see Swan Lake a few weeks ago, Covent Garden. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. But you don't get that same sense afterwards. You're not, everyone's not coming out talking about, oh, that brilliant bit when, whereas with football, even if, if you've lost, if you've drawn, if you've won, when you're coming out afterwards, the excitement, the buzz, the lows, but you're sharing them with people that you've known. We're taking the grandchildren now of people that I started going to football with when I was eight or nine. 
So we've grown up together and it's always been somewhere. And for me, coming from where I'm from, from this nondescript part of South London that has nothing that you can really recognise unless you're from there. The fact that people say to me, oh, you're the Palace fan. That makes me so proud. It makes me so proud because it's given me my identity. It's given me, it's rooted me in South London. Football's given me, it's, I've met so many people through football that are really good friends. I remember, you probably remember this, about 15, 20 years ago, Stan Collymore was playing for Aston Villa at the time, publicly said that he was suffering from depression. And the attitude was from his own manager, John Gregory, gave an interview, said, what's he unhappy about? He's, he's playing football and he's wealthy. How can he be depressed? That was the attitude then. Football, in the past five years, has really led the conversation, in particular for young men, it's really led the conversation about mental health, which almost brings us back to where we start. It's about men talking to each other, simply saying, oh, I'm, really, I'm really not firing on all cylinders at the moment. It's, and football's led the way. Football's led the way in saying it's all right to say that. So I like to say to people, oh, I just feel a bit grumpy today. I'm really, you know, I might give the pub a miss. And it's given people the tools. And so many people look to their football club for guidance. And the pandemic, if one good thing came out of the pandemic, football clubs all over the country, every single football club stepped up to the plate and were fantastic, not just in practical stuff. As I always say to Steve Power, I said, this place should be open 14 days a week, not just once a fortnight. There should be social clubs in here. There should be uh, lunch clubs for old people. There should be citizens' advice here. It should be a real focal hub for the community. But during the pandemic, it, it remotely it became that people looked to the and and you know Palace were, were doing fifteen hundred meals a day for local communities and, and sending them out. You know, Palace players were donating to PPE. It became a focal point, and it, in particular, the issue of mental health for young men. Football's made great steps forward in looking after the mental health of its own players. And that's been extended to helping young men in particular be aware of their mental health. And that's, I'm very proud of football for that. Football still has its issues. There aren't enough black chairmen, for example. But football, even, you know, some people might say it's a token gesture, but even taking the knee is a visible, it's a visible gesture that football does. And so many people look to their football club and there, are, there will be people who are, you know, Palace is a, is a South London working class club. There are, there are probably fans who are racists, but because of the need, they will think, they will think about why they're racist. And they, they know not to boot. And it's simple things like that. It does, football changes people's attitudes. And it's, that's what a business can do because it is a business at, at the heart of it. So Steve Parrish, the owner, is very aware of the community things. We do great stuff. The club and the foundation do great stuff in the community. But still, the role of the club is to keep making money to keep itself going as a football club. So it is a business. It's very much a business. And football, Premier League football, is, is a strange business because it's a huge global brand. But despite what you think, there isn't that much money in it. So Bet365, for example, who sponsors Stoke City, they could buy and sell every club in the Premier League in terms of finances. But in terms of global branding, football is really important. And in recent years, football is a business that's used its position in the world with responsibility. And I think... Football deserves a lot of credit for that. And I'm very proud to be a football fan because of it. But yeah, at the heart of it, these are not things we talk about in the pub. We talk about games that we we remember and games. Well. But it's a, it's a beautiful, important thing. And it is, again, it's probably mum's equivalent of being with her brothers. It just, I look forward, no matter what sort of mood I'm in, I can't wait to get to the pub. And I, I you know, we our table is always kept clear because the rest of the pub by osmosis knows that that's where we are at the back. 
and I can't wait to get there. And it's 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 fantastic. And the other thing is as well that it's, if somebody's not there, you notice and you find out why. You'll find you go, is everything all right? And they go, yeah, yeah, sorry, I'm learning it. So it's a it's it's a strange thing to explain to people who never go to football, but. As you can tell by my enthusiasm, I'm I'm very proud of it. But at the heart of it, as I say, football is a business, and business can. It, so the the thing that's probably most important to my life after my family is a business, and that's kind of an odd thing to say as well. Yeah, but it, it's beautiful, and uh, it's a beautiful way to uh, end this. Uh, Kevin Day, thank you so much for your humanity, your your humility, but most of all your humour. And thank you so much for being a guest on the Humorology podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm not sure how much people will learn <laughs> for running um, their own businesses, but now, yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. The Humorology podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes, and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.